What did it take to survive an ancient siege? Why was the cult of Dionysus behind so many slave revolts in ancient Rome? What's the tragic history and mythology behind Japan's most haunted ancient forest? We're Jen. And Jenny. From Ancient History Fangirl. Join us to explore ancient history and mythology from a fun, sometimes tipsy perspective. Find us at ancienthistoryfangirl.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, my name is Matt, host of the Pirate History Podcast. Pirates rank among the most mythologized and romanticized of all historical figures. It can become easy to forget that pirates were real people that had real-world concerns. If you like tales of high seas adventure, daring do, and also want to learn more about who Blackbeard supported to be king, you can learn more about all of that at the Pirate History Podcast. Hi, and welcome to Pax Britannica. My name is Neil Cooper, the host of Assassinations Podcast. I explore the history, conspiracies, and sometimes mysteries that surround some of the most notorious political killings. We have just wrapped a season in which I looked at deadly dynastic skullduggery, from ancient Rome all the way through to the present day. And in one week's time, we will commence a new season on the assassination of civil rights leaders, starting with the murder of Dr. Martin Luther King in Memphis in 1968. Episodes are released on Mondays and are available through your podcatcher of choice, as well as on our website, assassinationspodcast.com. Now, let me hand you back to Pax Britannica. Welcome to Pax Britannica. Episode 31 The Duke of Hazard. Welcome back to Pax Britannica. Last week, we returned to the narrative as Charles found other ways of raising revenue without calling Parliament, mainly benevolences and forced loans. This left the Crown with a significant amount of money and its subjects with trampled civil liberties. This cash immediately went to use. Desperately needed supplies and pay went to Stuart allies fighting in the Continental War, while the lion's share went into another naval expedition. This was intended to begin a widespread uprising against Cardinal Richelieu's monopoly of power, as French Protestants, disaffected nobles, and concerned neighbours all joined forces. The lifting of the siege of La Rochelle would be the first domino to fall. Except when the expedition, led by the Duke of Buckingham, attempted to push that domino over, they found it glued to the table, if I'm not stretching that metaphor too far. The siege of Ray was a disaster, and the Duke returned to England in November 1627 with fewer than half the soldiers he had taken, 
Thousands were either dead or in French custody. He didn't know it yet, but Buckingham had just made his last attempt to repair his reputation in battle. The guest intro from the Assassinations podcast might be relevant. After the disaster of the expedition, Charles was out of options. His ordinary revenues, those streams of income which the Crown always received, such as rents on royal lands, was simply not enough to meet the military obligations he now faced. The illegal tonnage and poundage, which Charles had been collecting without parliamentary approval, remember, helped, but was not enough. Charles had been selling Crown property and taking loans from those brave enough or foolish enough to offer credit to the king. These forms of income were obviously limited. Selling land meant less rents, while interest payments only added to the crown's debt. The benevolence and forced loan had worked by relying on his subjects' ingrained loyalty, as well as a healthy fear of foreign invasion, and even then it had faced significant resistance it would not be feasible to try it again. Not only would the pickings be even slimmer this time, but it would simply invite unrest. I missed out on saying last week that troops raised for the expedition were often billeted in civilian homes. This was both a cost-saving measure by the government, but was also used as a punishment against those who didn't submit to the loan. For whatever reason, Having a group of soldiers forced into your house was both unwelcome and expensive, as the armed men tended to just take whatever they wanted to eat and drink. While the soldiers were present, their commanders put the areas under martial law, and this applied to the residents as much as the troops. It should go without saying that this was yet another grievance. But the financial situation was beyond dire. The only option, elements of his Privy Council argued, was for Charles to summon another Parliament. It was agreed, and on the 31st of January, 1628, the summons went out. This was not a terrible idea. Despite the fears expressed by both houses, at this stage there's little evidence that Charles wanted to govern without consent. What king would want to be divided against his subjects? And there's plenty of reasons to think that this time, Parliament and king could be united. On the common side, Charles had shown a willingness to at least attempt to rule without Parliament. If the houses were too obstinate, then it was entirely possible that they would follow their counterparts on the continent, stripped of power or ignored entirely. Their institution was on the line, or at least some MPs believed so. It's also important to remember the sympathy for European Protestants that many MPs had. The Thirty Years' War was not going well for them at this stage. The attacks on Spanish and French territory, despite their obvious failure, were seen as a good idea, if not their execution. It's also possible that the seizure of French and Spanish shipping harkened back to a better time, a time of Raleigh and Drake, a time of English success on the high seas. From the king's point of view, he needed money, 
and he wanted Parliament to cooperate. To help matters, more peers were elevated to the House of Lords, either to silence their criticism or to bolster the House's loyalty. There was a spirit of compromise in the air, as the summons were answered and the Houses assembled on the 17th of March, 1628. By the time they had done so, Buckingham and Charles had already begun work on defending the kingdoms. The Lord Admiral reformed the naval administration and began construction of ten pinnaces, small, quick ships, to bolster the coastal defences against pirates and raiders. All of this cost money, and any further ships would require significantly more than the Duke had on hand. So with this in mind, Parliament met. Like I said, the 1628 Parliament began relatively well, with the House of Commons voting five subsidies to the King. Charles was so pleased that he declared, quote, Now I see with this I shall have the affection of my people. I love Parliaments. I shall rejoice to meet with my people often. Charles may have celebrated a bit too soon. The subsidies had been voted on, and the vote was apparently unanimous, but they had to be formed into a bill before they were valid. That would only happen after the Commons presented their grievances to the King. At this stage, everyone knew that repeating 1626 and attacking the Duke of Buckingham was a straight path to dissolution. Other dangerous topics were the impositions, still a thorn in court-parliament relations since James, and tonnage and poundage. Remember, tonnage and poundage was the traditional right of the king to collect, and had been for centuries, but it had been used as a justification for the impositions, and after attempts to limit its collection to a single year were bogged down in the Lords, Charles had been collecting it without parliamentary consent. These were serious grievances, but on the advice of Sir Edward Coke, the former Attorney General and one of the foremost legalists in British history, the Commons avoided the topics. Instead, they focused on grievances that had directly come about from the war, billeting troops on civilians, instituting martial law in England, compelling money from subjects and imprisoning them without cause. There was very little debate whether the king's subjects were legally protected from these abuses. They were. MPs like Coke could probably list the relevant statutes by heart, and the greatest of these was Magna Carta. However, everyone acknowledged that the king had his prerogative rights that could be used in an emergency, and there was no attempt to utterly forbid these acts. But the legal case was clear. Charles shouldn't rely on them, and he shouldn't use them all the time. His subjects should be able to trust their sovereign not to abuse his rights. But the simple fact of the matter was that they could not trust Charles. Charles was quite happy to promise his parliament that, yes, actually, he could be trusted not to abuse his subjects, and could they please cross the T's and dot the I's on his taxation bill now? This simple statement complicated things. The Commons was now divided against the Lords, the latter agreeing that the King had made a good case and the matter was settled. Not so the Commons, who made the very good point 
that Charles hadn't done anything. He was generally agreeing that the law was the law, which wasn't much of a concession, especially when he had so recently flouted it. Smith puts it nicely, quote, Virtually everyone agreed that the king possessed certain powers in an emergency. The dilemma was how to prevent him from using those powers in non-emergency situations without destroying the powers themselves or defining them so precisely that they ceased to be discretionary. The solution was the Petition of Right. The Petition of Right is one of the great events of the pre-Civil War Caroline era. According to David Smith and Mark Kishlansky, the petition wasn't disputing those rights, but stating that in ordinary circumstances there were statutes in place to prevent their use. In other words, by granting his royal assent to the petition, Charles would acknowledge that he had acted illegally. Between April and May 1628, the Commons and the Lords debated, amended, redrafted, and eventually passed the Petition of Right. After the petition got through the Lords, itself a political battle, as the supporters of Buckingham attempted to block its passage, it reached the King on the 2nd of June. His response was less than satisfying. The King willeth that right be done according to the laws and customs of the realm, and that the statutes be put in due execution, that his subjects may have no cause to complain of any wrong or oppressions, contrary to their just rights and liberties, to the preservation whereof he holds himself as well obliged as of his prerogative. End quote. This wasn't good enough. Charles had essentially said yes, but he'd avoided the traditional form of approval, and so the Commons wasn't satisfied that he had actually given his royal assent. As such, their grievances had not been met, and they refused to pass the taxation. Charles held out for five days, before capitulating. He sent another message to the Commons, quote, The answer I have already given you was made with so good deliberation, and approved by the judgments of so many wise men, that I could not have imagined but it should have given you full satisfaction. But, to avoid all ambiguous interpretations, and to show you there is no doubleness in my meaning, I am willing to pleasure you as well in words as in substance. Read your petition, and you shall have an answer that I am sure will please you. The petition was read, and this answer was returned, and then, in French, let it be done as it is desired. This was the conventional assent, albeit with the king's clear exasperation. Now, with the petition established with the same authority as statute law, the commons voted the king's five subsidies. This was a moral victory for Parliament, but little else. Neither king nor Parliament believed that this would have any practical limit to Charles's powers, and the king immediately began to undermine it. The petition was printed and added to the parliamentary roll, but Charles had ordered his first answer included, the one which the Commons found unacceptable, and had the statute number removed. Both of these acts meant that now, the petition was on precarious legal ground, and meant that it couldn't be used in court to protect against royal abusers, 
So the Petition of Right was even weaker than it had been intended to be. And even had the petition been a perfect defence of parliamentary rights, blocking future abuses from the Crown, it was limited in scope. Now that a compromise had been wrung out of both sides, the kiddie gloves were off. The Commons now returned to its favourite pastime, attacking the Duke of Buckingham. Coke and Sir John Eliot, I told you these were names we'd see again, led the effort of drafting the Remonstrance. This shouldn't be confused with the Grand Remonstrance which came about during the Long Parliament. This Remonstrance was presented to Charles on the 17th of June, and it explicitly criticised Buckingham's war efforts. Charles was apparently surprised that more grievances had appeared so soon after the Petition of Right, which means he was either naive or being deliberately obtuse. If his confusion was meant to cow Parliament, it didn't work. A second remonstrance arrived, this time focused on the collection of tonnage and poundage, declaring that it was being illegally collected and was in direct contravention of the Petition of Right. Charles disagreed and said that the Commons was misusing the petition and prorogued Parliament at the end of June. By the time Parliament reassembled, in January 1629, at least one of their grievances had been resolved. Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly two million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org. Between the first and second remonstrance, a worrying portent of things to come occurred in London. So, let us introduce Dr. John Lamb, an old friend from the history of witchcraft. John Lamb was born in either 1545 or 1546 in the English county of Worcestershire to unknown parents. According to the pamphlets that described his life, he seems to have been learned enough to teach the children of local gentry. Where Lamb began to stray was when he began to practice medicine, whereupon he took the title of doctor and began treating patients. Going further... Dr. Lamb took up more esoteric arts. He began to tell fortunes, and claimed that he could discover lost property, diagnose the ailments of people he had never met, and could tell whether someone was or was not a witch. He could show young people the faces of their future spouses in a crystal glass, or whether it was ball-shaped or not, I don't know, and revealing, quote, to wives the escapes and faults of their husbands, and to husbands of their wives. All these services, of course, came at a price, and the good doctor managed to make quite a living off of the credulity and marriage problems of his clients. Lamb appears to have had a relatively successful career as a physician and conjurer for decades. We have no record of Lamb in a brush with the law until as late as 1608, it was in May of this year that Lamb was accused at the Worcestershire Assize of using, quote, evil 
devilish and execrable arts to disable, make infirm, and consume the body and strength of the said Thomas, Lord Windsor. In addition to this charge, Lamb was also accused of invoking spirits. One Mr. Wainman testified that when he had spoken to Dr. Lamb, the good doctor was able to read him like a book. He knew his life story, despite being strangers. He could point to scars and marks on Wainman's body that were hidden by clothes, and promised that he could do the same to others. Apparently, in an attempt to convince a prospective client of his services, Lamb summoned a spirit with a crystal glass, at which point the doctor professed his love for the diabolic entity. Wainman then ran away, in terror of what he'd seen, although he clearly got over his fear because he testified of another time when he'd spoken to Lamb. Here, Lamb had offered his services to, quote, intoxicate, poison, and bewitch any man so that they should be disabled from begetting of children, end quote. Lamb seems to have been held throughout his trial in Worcester Castle, where he quite happily demonstrated his skills to visitors, which was probably not the best idea when you're on trial for sorcery. One such tale is of three men who visited Lamb late in the day and asked for some wine. When they were told that none was available, and that none could be ordered in due to the lateness, Lamb asked what type of wine they wanted. When they answered, he called out for a wine glass, and it immediately appeared on the table, full to the brim with the requested wine, with the stamp of a local tavern on its side. Another tells of Lamb telling his company that he would make a nearby woman lift her skirt. To their shock, she did, and when people around her, quote, asked what she meant by so shameless a behaviour, she answered them that she meant to wade through the water and save her clothes, imagining it should seem that there had been a pool where it was dry land, end quote. Despite all this, the charge against Lamb for bewitching Lord Windsor was suspended, while the charge of invoking spirits was stayed. And then, perhaps, the most dramatic part of this story occurred. Within two weeks of the suspension of the trial proceedings, more than 40 people involved in the trial of Dr. Lamb died. These included sheriffs, justices of the peace, witnesses and jury members. According to Dr. Anita McConnell, the most likely cause of the deaths was an infectious disease such as typhus, also known as jail fever, which could have spread quite happily in the close confines of the court. It is no surprise, however, that public opinion immediately blamed the good doctor for the deaths. This was his revenge against those who had wronged him. So it did not take long for a petition to call for Lamb to be transferred to London, which he was. Now, what happened next is unclear. Lamb seems to have been imprisoned in the King's Bench Jail for a number of years, but still had substantial liberty and came into significant wealth over the next few years, and yet there's no mention in the sources that he was ever pardoned. It seems like business continued as normal for Lamb. He practised medicine and his mystical arts, or at least pretended to, and had employees making clothes in his jailhouse rooms. At one point, he met the man who would change his life, and not really for the better. George Villiers, Duke of Buckingham, became the patron of Lamb, employing his services and knowledge. On the 17th of June, 1623, Lamb was indicted for the rape of an 11-year-old girl called Joan Seeger, 
who had been to his rooms to deliver some herbs when the 77-year-old doctor was accused of assaulting her. The jury found him guilty, and the judge sentenced him to death. Yet, the Lord Chief Justice James Lee, possibly on his own initiative, or possibly at the urging of Lamb's powerful friends, questioned the strength of the case. On further investigation, it was revealed that young Joan's father was in significant debt to Lamb, and the doctor had demanded payment only a few weeks before the first accusation was levelled. Faced with this revelation, on the 4th of June, 1624, Lay pardoned Lamb of the crime on the grounds that the accusation was false and driven by financial motives. Now, finally pardoned, which seems to have included his Worcestershire convictions, Lamb moved out of the King's Bench Jail and rented a house near Parliament for over a year. Now, Buckingham may have played a role in Lamb's pardon, but he was a dangerous friend to have. Something we haven't touched on much was the popular notion that Buckingham's influence over first James and now Charles was due to witchcraft. His consorting with a figure as maligned as Dr. John Lamb hardly helped this reputation, and the same was true for Lamb himself. Their equally poor reputations multiplied with each other. In June 1626, a bizarre storm swept up the Thames, which the pamphlets claim ripped corpses out of churchyards and lifted the mist from Buckingham's residence. Lamb was said to have been seen on the Thames itself, marshalling the weather. Around the same time, Buckingham's mother asked Lamb to tell her son's fortune. He is said to have shown her, in his crystal, a man with a dagger. The accuracy of this claim is particularly questionable. Prophecies that actually tell the future tend to be fabricated after the events themselves. Rumours circled that Lamb, now close to 80 years old, was the lover of Buckingham's sister-in-law, providing her with charms, although this is seriously doubtful. Lady Purbeck was at the centre of something of a scandal, accused of adultery with the son of the Earl of Suffolk, and it appears to have been Buckingham himself who pushed for her to be tried for adultery and accused her of witchcraft. Why would Lamb go against the wishes of his patron in such a way? Perhaps a better question is why would Lady Purbeck go for an octogenarian charlatan? Such was the reputation of Lamb that even now he was dogged by the claims made against him 20 years previously. In December of 1627, he was accused of sorcery and for trying to persuade a Westminster scholar, quote, to give himself to the devil, and was again imprisoned. It was at this time that Lamb's fraudulent services were exposed. He had repeatedly claimed that he'd been licensed by the Bishop of Durham to practice as a physician. When examined by the College of Physicians while imprisoned, it was discovered that he had no knowledge of the language of medicine, nor of how to correctly practice. It is possible that the doctor's mental faculties weren't what they used to be, or that the discipline and methods had changed or developed since he was trained, but Lamb went on to admit that he was indeed conning people in order to earn a living. He had nothing but lucky guesses when peddling both medicine and sorcery. Sometime between this examination and June 1628, 
Lamb must have been released. For on the 13th of June, or the 18th of June, my sources disagree, he went to the theatre. Yet, he was of such ill repute that he was recognised by a crowd of people that followed him when he left. Obviously a bit concerned about the heckling group, Lamb paid some sailors, probably of the intimidating sort, to act as his guards while he ate supper at a tavern. When he left, he took his guards with him, and the now outright hostile crowd pelted him with stones as he ran. The doctor took shelter in another tavern, while his guards faced the wrath of the mob, but the tavern keeper was not willing to risk his life and his livelihood by sheltering someone like Lamb. The doctor was made to leave, and he managed to sneak into a neighbouring house, only to be discovered and ejected by the mob. It was at this point, surrounded by dozens of angry Londoners, that the crowd stoned and beat the doctor until he fell unconscious. When help arrived, he was taken to a nearby lockhouse, but only in the morning, Dr. John Lamb died of his wounds. No one was ever brought to trial for Lamb's death, despite the court bringing significant pressure upon the local authorities. Lamb was part of Buckingham's retinue, and was well liked by the king himself. When no progress had been made, the court imposed a thousand pound fine on the city companies. Within days of the lynching, anonymous pamphlets circulated through London. Two were particularly well read, and had lines such as, Let Charles and George do what they can. The Duke shall die like Dr. Lamb. Another said, quote, Who rules the kingdom? The king. Who rules the king? The duke. Who rules the duke? The devil. Let the duke look to it, for they intend shortly to use him worse than they did the doctor, and if things be not shortly reformed, they will work a reformation themselves. During the first session of Parliament, Buckingham had not been idle. We touched on the role he played in trying to steer the petition of right in such a way as to protect the king's prerogatives. In earlier years, perhaps Buckingham would have held enough influence over the lords to make a stronger case. But now, his position was far from secure. On top of the two expeditions that we've already covered, of Cadiz and Ray, while the Parliament was in session, a third expedition was dispatched. This one was under the command of Buckingham's brother-in-law, the Earl of Denbigh, and its intended target was La Rochelle itself. We won't go into the details of this trip, because like the others, it was a failure, and as Lord Admiral, and as brother-in-law to the commander, this only tarnished Buckingham's reputation further. Charles's first evasive response to the petition of right was blamed by the Commons on Buckingham. This was to be expected, his role was of the evil counsellor, who could be targeted when the king could not. Charles prorogued Parliament, and Buckingham continued his preparations. Continued his preparations, I hear you say. What was he preparing, I hear you continue? Well, would you be surprised to hear that he was preparing another expedition to the continent? What if I told you it was, once again, an attempt to relieve La Rochelle? Well, I hope you're sat down, because, shock, it is. The third time is the charm, after all. With the taxation bought with the petition of right, 
Buckingham could now finalise the arrangements he had been working on. Or at least, he could try. The situation on the French coast had changed, and the royalist forces had built a floating palisade to physically block any attempts to enter the bay and reach La Rochelle. To counter this, Buckingham assembled a fleet which included fireships. Filled with explosive powder, these vessels would be set alight and steered into the blockade, making short work of the palisade and any French vessels nearby. In July, while the king was in Portsmouth where the fleet was being assembled, Buckingham remained in London. Time was of the essence, and London was where he could best organise the supplies he needed. Still, Buckingham had to wrestle with bureaucracy and failed promises. He wrote to the Viscount Conway, a privy councillor with the king in Portsmouth, saying, quote, I find nothing of more difficulty and uncertainty than the preparations here for this service of Rochelle. Every man saith he hath all things ready, and yet all remains as it were at a stand. Even with the taxation, money remained scarce, and Buckingham had to handle mutinous sailors who were hungry for pay, and just plain hungry. His house was usually surrounded by them, as was his coach whenever he left. It got to the point that Buckingham had a proclamation made, and you can hear his frustration, quote, I have done more for you than ever my predecessors did. I procured the increase of your pay to a third part more than it was. I have parted with mine own money to pay you, and engaged all mine own estate for your satisfaction. Once matters were settled, he left the city and travelled to meet the fleet, arriving in Portsmouth on the 14th of August. He took a set of rooms in the Greyhound Inn, and made it the headquarters of the final stage of planning. Charles stayed close by, at the house of the MP, Sir Daniel Norton, only a few miles outside of town. For the next week, Buckingham met with captains and soldiers, awaited the delivery of supplies, and kept in constant contact with the king. On Saturday, the 23rd of August, 1628, Buckingham was awoken with the news that the siege of La Rochelle had been lifted. This wasn't true, as it happened, but Buckingham didn't know. He had his breakfast, and then decided to ride to Charles and tell him the good news in person. He made his way downstairs, to the main hall of the inn. As usual, it was crowded with people, soldiers, sailors, ordinary townsfolk. Many of them were clients of Buckingham, and many more were to be under his command when the expedition set off. In amongst the crowd was a soldier, no different from anyone else in the smoky room. But he wasn't there to drink, or to meet with his comrades, or to discuss the coming expedition. He watched the Duke enter the hall, saw him make his way through the crowd, greeting those he knew and making small talk as he passed. The soldier saw the Duke stop by one of his colonels, Sir Thomas Fryer, and he made his way behind the officer. As Fryer bowed to the second highest person in the kingdoms, the soldier struck. Reaching over the colonel, the soldier rammed a dagger into the Duke's chest. Buckingham fell to the ground with an oath, the cheap blade in his heart. George Villiers, 
Viscount, Earl, Marquis, and Duke of Buckingham, favourite of two kings, died on the dirty floor of an inn. He had been the premier courtier of the Stuart kings for twelve years. Next time, we will hear about who this assassin was, why he murdered the duke, and what it meant for the kingdoms. If you want to hear more about assassinations, then go have a listen to the Assassinations podcast. There's a nice mix of historical and more recent killings, so you have your Julius Caesars and Franz Ferdinands, but also assassinations that have happened in the last few years, like Alexander Litvinenko and King Jongnam. It isn't too gory for those squeamish amongst you, and is really worth a listen. Neil goes into fantastic detail about the context around an assassination, the act itself, as well as its fallout. Find it everywhere you find your podcasts. Remember that you can follow me on Twitter, at SamuelHume10, as well as the show, at BritannicaPax. Thank you to my wonderful House of Lords, the Royal Headsman, executed today, Her Grace the Duchess of Devon, Michelle Gersich, His Grace the Duke of Clarence, Rory Martin, the Most Honourable Marchioness of Scullion, Lady Jennifer, the Right Honourable Countess of Shrewsbury, Elaine Dickens, Countess of Surrey, Jean Buckley, Earl of Oxford, Christopher Grogan, Earl of Somerset, Brendan Bonner, Countess of Cornwall, Belinda Clarence, Earl of Hereford, Christopher Rema, Earl of Dunbar, Angus Wilson, Earl of Northumberland, Michael Thomas, the Earl of Southampton, Alan Goldstein, the Earl of Northampton, Justin Drowns, the Earl of Nottingham, John Toogood, the Earl of Leicester, Jim Du Bois, Stephen, Earl of Warwick, the Earl of Bradford, Richard Little, the Countess of Clarendon, Mandy Wright, David, Earl of Montgomery, the Earl of Derby, Jonathan Musselman, the Earl of Carlisle, Ian Lester. Thanks again to my entire House of Lords, to Sounds Like an Earful for the music in today's episode, and to you for listening. <laughs> <laughs>